The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room. You're welcome. All right, Philippians chapter 3. This is where we're going to be at this morning, Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse 12. So we've been cruising through Philippians for several weeks. I think we're week nine. Um, we've been talking about uh, joy as we've been walking through this book. Uh, we, we've been talking about, we started off talking about the difference between joy and happiness. That the word happiness is derived from the word happening, so it's completely circumstantial. Your happiness ebbs and flows with the circumstances of life, but joy is something that's far greater than happiness because it stays, it can stay even kill because it's a product of the Holy Spirit dwelling within the heart of the believer. That uh, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians. We see throughout Philippians uh, that joy looks completely different than happiness. As we read through Philippians, it's very evident that joy and happiness are, are two very different things. Happiness is all about living for the happenings of life. It's all about living for the moment. It's all about following your heart. But what we've been learning from Paul's letter is that joy is found in a different kind of lifestyle. That if we're going to live for joy, it's going to be found in living in a different kind of lifestyle, one marked by living for others first, one marked by complete obedience to the Father, one marked by submitting to the Word of God over the desires of our own hearts. You want to find joy, stop living for yourself, stop living for the circumstances of life, and start living for the glory of God. And this is the life we should be reaching for. This is what we should be aiming ourselves at. Now, this morning it's Father's Day, so I think uh, all of us dads, we can acknowledge and admit uh, that we have kind of become a little bit of a lazy society, right? When I want a Diet Coke, I don't go get a Diet Coke. That's why I had four kids for. I call a name out, and whatever one comes, that's who goes and gets me a Diet Coke when it's time, right? We've kind of become a little bit of a lazy society. We've become couch people. We sit on the couch, come home from work, sit on the couch, watch TV, and we'll do whatever it takes not to have to move. And it's gotten so bad that we've invented technology to remind us to stand up so we don't throw a clot, Right? If we sit down so long, we'll start getting blood clots in our legs. So we've got watches now that are like, hey, fatty, stand up. That's how bad it's gotten. It's so bad that we'll sit on the couch, and if the remote or something that we want is relatively close, we'll throw our shoulder out of socket, trying to reach as far as we can to grab it so we don't have to get our butts off the couch, right? We'll hyperextend that bad boy. We reach with everything in us so that we don't have to move. Right? We'll reach really, really, really hard so that we don't have to get up. And it's with that kind of fortitude that we should be reaching for this joyful life that Paul's been talking about. That's the, the, the image I want you to have in your head. While we're talking about reaching, I want you to Im imagine your fat self sitting on the couch reaching for that Diet Coke can that's just out of your reach. Right? You're going to do whatever you got to do to get to it. We labor towards obedience to the Father. We labor towards this other's first life. We labor towards warring against our heart's desires. And here's the truth this morning. You can waste your whole life. You can waste your whole life chasing temporary gratification. You can expend your, your life short. 80 years will go by just like that. 
Ask any 80-year-old in the room. My mom will tell you. Oh, I'm going to be in trouble for that. Oh, man. Sometimes things come to my mind, and it's like, you shouldn't say that, but it just comes out. You ever had that? I'm dead. All right. You can waste your whole life uh, expending it on temporary gratification, but what have you gained in the end? Right? If all you live for is yourself, if all you live for is your happiness, happiness and the happenings of life, if that's what your life is being expended on, then when your life ends, what have you really gained? That's why in Mark 8, 36, we see where it says, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and lose his life? So you stand at the end of your life and you've lived your whole life for your own happiness and every decision you've made has been for yourself. You die and then you stand for, before God and, and what? You face judgment. And so you've expended your life on Nothing. You'll never be satisfied with that type of life either. Because what happens? You get a new car, immediately you get this like, feels good, I'm excited about it. And then a month later, the new car smell starts to wear off. And it's like, man, that new model just came out and I really would like that new model. Right? It's this endless pursuit of happiness. It never satisfies. And the reason that's true is because you weren't created to live for yourself. It's not what you're created to do. God created you to live for his glory. And, and, and some people might look at that and think, man, God's really conceited. Why would he, why would he create us to live for his glory? Well, let me ask you, who, who else deserves for you to live for their glory? Do you, do you deserve that? You as a flawed being? God is the only person, essence, who's ever existed that is worthy of that kind of, that kind of devotion. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. So knowing that the abundant life is only found in living for the glory of God, why would we reach for anything else? If you want to live an abundant life, the life that you were created to live, why would we shoot for anything else? It's Father's Day today, right? Today's Father's Day. Today's the day that we honor our dads who, uh, by, by uh, going and grilling or going to the lake or or whatever. As you can see, attendance is low on Father's Day. The second highest attendance for us is Mother's Day, so we just kind of see how that works itself out. And we as dads, we, as soon as our kids are born, we, we, we have things in our mind that we want to instill in our children, right? In that hospital, when you hold that baby for the first time, you immediately, as a father, if you're a good father, you immediately start thinking, I'm responsible for this child, and there are things that I want this child to grow up and learn. And you start having things in your mind, and as they grow, you do your best to instill those things. You're not perfect, we fail, but you do your best to instill those traits in your child, things like work ethic, right? We want our children to be hard workers, things like respect and honor, things like a disciplined lifestyle, love, faithfulness, all these character traits that we want our kids to learn and, and for those things to be instilled in them, and they're all good and important. But none of them compare to teaching our children to reach their lives towards living for the glory of God. You can teach your kid all those traits and all those things are important, but none of them are as important as teaching your kid to expend their lives on the glory of God. What if we taught them this? What if we modeled it for them? What if we showed them what it looks like to live for others first and to surrender in complete obedience to the Father and didn't follow our own hearts but followed the word of God? What if, what if we modeled this for our kids as fathers? Think of where it could lead if they saw genuine faith and surrender 
versus nominal obedience and lip service. I did student ministry for years, and I can tell you that there were a few kids that got this, but the overarching majority of kids who came to our student ministry, they didn't get it because their parents didn't model it for them. Their parents would come to church on Sunday. That was really the only Christian thing about them. They may even pray before the meals and things like that, all these little lip service things, but their lives were being still lived for themselves, and the kids only saw this fake thing that wasn't real to their parents, so why would it be real to them? And so we as fathers in this room, it's Father's Day, this is going to be a buck up or shut up kind of thing. We need to stand on the Word of God and live this out in a real way. It's not your wife's job. It's not. Most fathers leave this kind of stuff up to their wife. Listen to me this morning. Biblically, that's not her job. Biblically, it's your job. It's your job to be the leader of your household. It's your job to stand up and teach your kids to walk in the ways of God, to live their lives for the glory of God. That is your responsibility, and if you're pawning it off on your wife, you're not being a man according to the Scriptures. It's just the truth of the Bible. It's time that we have men stand up and live for the glory of God and model this for their kids. And this is why our society is the way it is. This is why the church is the way it is, because men aren't standing up and being leaders that they're called to be. So fathers, we've got to step up. So often we're more concerned with teaching our kids to throw a ball than teaching them to reach for living their lives for the glory of God. We've got to get this stuff right. We're doing our kids an injustice by missing this. It's a tragedy. So this idea of reaching for the glory of God is what Paul's getting at in our passage this morning. So let's read together, starting verse 12. He says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching toward what is ahead, I pursue as the goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you, if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will transform, he will transform the body of the humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body for the, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So this morning we're going to break this down like we normally do. The first thing we see in verse 12 is the Christian dilemma. He says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect. We finished up last week with the idea that Paul was aiming his life at knowing Christ and his power and crucifying his desires. That's, that's where we ended last week. And the reason he's doing that is because he knew that that kind of fruit was proof that his life was truly changed by the gospel. We talked about last week how your heart can lie to you. 
And it's important that we test our faith and make sure that our faith is genuine, that we truly surrendered our lives to Christ and that there will be evidence if we've truly surrendered our life to Christ. And Paul says that this is the evidence, that if he is pursuing, knowing Christ and his power and crucifying his desires, then that is evidence of a true surrender to God, that it's evidence that the Holy Spirit truly lives in a person. But he also says, I haven't reached that goal. He's aiming towards that, but he hasn't reached that goal. In other words, there's still more intimacy with Christ to be gained. There's still more power of Christ to be experienced. There's still more sinful desires to be crucified. There's still more stuff for God to do in his life. Paul hadn't reached the goal yet. He wasn't perfect. And listen to me this morning, neither are you. Neither are you. Neither am I. We are imperfect, and we will continue to have to strive towards these things. A lot of people view conversion as the finish line. And if we can just get someone saved, that's it, we're done with them, right? Or in their own minds, they're like, once I profess Christ, that's all I have to do, and I'm sealed, I'm done. But conversion is the starting line. It starts a new pursuit in your life. When I was in high school, I was at the lake with some friends. We got this bright idea that we would swim across the lake. Man, in your like, you know, 17-year-old mind, that doesn't seem that far. When you look out across the lake, it just seems like a little short distance. But when you start swimming that thing, that's another story. We got like a quarter of the way out, and I thought I was going to die. I was sucking wind. And at this point in my life, I was actually fairly like, active. I had been a lifeguard and been through all that lifeguard swimming training. We had to swim like a mile every day. I mean, I had done all that kind of stuff. And so I wasn't near as like, out of shape and fat as I am now. But... Uh, we get about a quarter of the way done, and I feel like I'm about to, about to die. We get about halfway, and it's, it just seems like we're not getting closer to the other shore. I mean, we've been swimming for like forever, and I keep looking up, and I'm like, we're not making any progress whatsoever. And you, you feel like you're dying. Um, this, is, this is kind of what the Christian life is like. You start living your life for the glory of God, and, and the goal of perfection just seems like you're never going to get there. It seems like it's never going to be attained. And the truth is, we will never reach the shores of perfection this side of heaven. You're never going to reach that side, but that doesn't mean we don't stop swimming. Last week, we read Romans 7, where Paul says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul understood that conversion was the starting point. That for him, that was the starting point. He hated his sin and wanted to immediately be ridden of it, but that's not how this works. Right? You read that section of, of Paul's letter in Romans, and it, you see this desire within him to be ridden completely of sin, for sin to not be something that he continues to pursue. He's like, I do the things I know I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things I know I should do. And he, this, this thing is warring within, inside of him. He wants nothing to do with that anymore, but he, can, he still continues to live with that sin. Paul understood that conversion was the starting point. Sanctification is a process. It's a lifelong goal. We see that in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice it says, our being. This isn't a past tense event. You see that, right? It says, our being. Sanctification didn't happen once and for all at your conversion. It's happening little by little every single day. When we were swimming across that lake and it seemed like we were never going to get to the other shore, one thing that was an encouragement is I could look back at the other shore and realize we're not where we started. 
right? It's the same thing in our Christian walk. You will never reach perfection as you look across that, that, that span of life, and it's like, I'm never going to get there. What you can do is you can look back and realize I'm not where I started. I'm not who I was when I came to Christ. God has changed me. His spirit is moving in my life and making me into a new creation. You can see evidence of that because you're not who you were when you started. Our dilemma is that because of the indwelling of the spirit of the living God, we've been given a new understanding of our sin. We know and understand the death it brings to our lives. We hate it. We mourn it. We want nothing to do with it. Yet, our heart wages war against that spirit. We are a wretched, sinful people. And so even though we aim at knowing Christ and his power, we aim at killing our selfish desires, we won't always be successful because we aren't perfect. But thanks be to God that his spirit is sanctifying us into his image until one day we will be finally saved when we are glorified in heaven for eternity. Which leads us to the next point. Christian pursuit. Look at verse 12, the second part of verse 12. He says, but... Even though I've not made it, even though I'm not perfect, still I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. We may not always be successful at killing our selfish desires, but that doesn't mean we don't still reach for it. We as believers, we still reach for that perfection. Even though we can't obtain it, even though it's not possible, we still reach for it because we've been taken hold of by Christ. Paul says, make every effort, not out of a desire to earn your salvation, but because you've been taken hold of by Christ. Once Christ takes hold of your heart, you can't just continue to live in your sin. You're going to reach towards righteousness. Jesus changes lives. That's the point here. Jesus changes lives. The gospel changes lives. Look at 1 John 1.9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But look, it doesn't end there. Notice what else he says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. People want to leave that last part out, right? They want to talk about the neither do I condemn you part without talking about the go and sin no more part. People don't want to be judged. They're like, hey, I can come to Christ and still live in my sin. No, that's not how this works because he's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will change your life. Yes, Jesus' love leads him to forgive you, of your sins, but that's a, and, and that's a wonderful, beautiful thing, right? Jesus' forgiveness, wonderful, beautiful thing, but the gospel is even bigger than that. It's powerful enough to literally make you into a new creation. That's what Paul says. He's faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus changes you. You can't come into a knowing relationship with Christ and not be radically changed by that reality. He puts within you a desire to reach forward to what's ahead. What's the key to this? Paul says it. He says, don't focus on what you're giving up. He says, I don't look behind, right? I don't look behind what was behind for Paul. All that prestige, all the religious works. Paul was a well-respected religious leader. We learned all that last week. All of that was basically garbage compared to knowing Jesus, Paul says. That's a polite word. He actually says it's all crap, basically. People, when they find out that I'm a pastor, you know, go meet someone in the community, they get really inquisitive about my lifestyle. 
when asked me questions like, do you have TV? <laughs> Can you have the internet? Can you be married? I mean, they ask me all kinds of questions. It's, it's all born out of this idea in their mind that I have the most boring life ever. People want to focus on what surrendering to Jesus will cause them to give up. They'll have to walk away from partying on the weekend. They'll have to stop cohabitating with their girlfriend. They'll have to sacrifice their time and finances. They want to talk about all these things. Man, I've got to give all this stuff up if I come and surrender my life to Christ. And, the, and, and all that's true. If you want to come to know Christ, it requires repentance. It requires you walking away from that old lifestyle. But Jesus changes lives. He, he promises to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. He says, go and sin no more. But here, here's the issue with that kind of mindset. They're, they're wrong about focusing on what they're giving up. Because when you've been taken hold of by Christ, you realize what you're giving up is garbage in comparison to what you're gaining. Do you see, do you see the difference here? People want to look at the Christian faith and think, man, if I come to Jesus, I'm going to give this up, I've got to give that up, I've got to give, I'm going to give all these lists of things up. But when they come to know Jesus, when they taste and see who he is and what that relationship brings to their life, all of that is garbage, or as Paul says, it's all poop compared to knowing Jesus and have a relationship with him. What we give up pales in comparison to the glory of knowing and communing with the God of the universe. They can't even be compared that old lifestyle can't even be compared to what Jesus brings to a life. That's why Paul says he considers his old life to be dung in comparison, something he used to value and love. Think about Paul's old life. He loved it. He had the life, right? He loved that life. Now on this side of a relationship with Jesus, he looks back and realizes it's just garbage. It's nothing. There's no value to it all in comparison to knowing and communing with God. And so he reaches forward towards the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. This is how Paul lived his life. Because he's been changed by Jesus, he doesn't focus on what he's lost in his old life, but focuses on what he's gaining. He keeps his mind on the things above. That's why he writes to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, so if you've been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, if you've been changed by the gospel, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says your life has been changed. It's been changed, so don't fix your eyes on what that old life had in the past. Fix your eyes on the future of the glory that awaits you in heaven. What you gave up to become a Christian is nothing in comparison to the glory of what you will receive when you're face to face with your Savior. Then Paul goes on, he talks about Christian maturity. Verse 15, he says, Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to what's, whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Working with teenagers, you, you, you uh, see teenage girls who like to think that they're mature, and they want to tell you all about it. 
right? I'm just, I'm just so much more mature than my friends, and I just, I'm just so much more mature. And I learned that as soon as those words come out, they were the most immature and the one that was going to cause all the drama in the group. Because if you got to tell me you're mature, you are, you're not mature at all, right? The same is true for spiritual maturity. Paul says evidence that we are mature is reaching towards our heavenly calling. Spiritual maturity isn't about how much scripture you necessarily know. It's how much scripture you actually live out. Right? You can know everything there is to know about this book, but if you're not living it out, you're a spiritual infant. Paul says evidence that we are actually mature is that we are reaching towards our heavenly calling. And we're seeing more worth in knowing Jesus than anything this world can offer. I love that he says, if you don't get this, you will. Right? He says, all of us who are mature should think this way, but if you're not thinking this way, you're immature, you'll get there at some point. Right? That's what he says. If you're really a new creation, God will reveal this truth to you. There's no question or doubt about that reality. This is more evidence that you can't come to saving knowledge of Christ and still live in the sin in which you, with, uh, in which you once lived. It just doesn't work that way. The gospel changes lives, right? That change is more evident in our understanding that Jesus is more valuable than anything this world can offer. Just like we said last week, he's more valuable than your comfort, your temporary gratification, your sexuality, your heart's desires. So whatever sin you have to repent of in order to know him, it's worth it because he's better. Paul was a great example of this. He walked away from all the things a first century Jewish man could attain. He walked away from all of it, power, wealth, success, respect, and honor. Paul had it all, but it wasn't worth holding on to if it meant not having Jesus. Paul came to that conclusion. This was the truth Paul came to know, and he says, you got to live out your convictions. you got to live out your truth, right? The truth. So many Christians today profess Jesus with their mouths, but they completely reject him with their lives. They've bought into the cultural mantra of self-gratification and pursuit of happiness. You can't follow Jesus and live for self. You can't do that. He, he said that, right? He said, if anybody wants to follow after me, they have to what? Deny themselves, take up their cross, and then they can follow me. Right? So you want to say that you're a Christ follower, you're a Christian, but you still follow your own heart? Those two things don't work. It doesn't work that way. You can't have both. Paul says, follow his example. He modeled it. Leave the idols of this world and reach for knowing Christ and his power. So the question is, can that be said about you? Can that be said about you? Can people look to you as the example for walking away from the idols of this world and reaching for knowing Christ and his power? Can that be said about you? Again, it's Father's Day. Are you the example of this for your spouse? Are you the example of this for your kids? This is the kind of stuff that we should be instilling in our family, right? Not just church attendance, not just saying a prayer before we eat, not just, you know, all these churchy things. What we should be instilling in our kid is, is that they completely sell out for this reality of the gospel. Kids are looking for a genuine faith, and they'll buy into that. But if you, there's any hint of, of a fake following, they're not going to buy into that. They're going to see right through it. We need people to grow in spiritual maturity and be the example like Paul. When I read that text, that's a sobering thought, right? That Paul could say, hey, look at me and live like I live.
That's a sobering thought. But then he also says that there's other people that are going to live like this, right? He said, join in entertaining brothers and sisters and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. So he says, follow me, but also follow the people who are following me. So again, can that be said about you? This should be able to be said about you. If you're a Christian, you've been Christian for a while, that should be able to be said about you. You can't just say, well, you know, I, I, I believe all that Jesus stuff, but people shouldn't follow me. I would be a horrible example. What does that say about you? What does that say about your faith? If you've been a Christian for any time at all, at some point, you should be able to be followed like Paul says. People should be able to look to you and see how you've given up all of the old sins that you used to once follow and have completely sold out for the living, for the glory of God. He goes on, he talks about the Christian antithesis. Look at verse 18. He says, For I've often told you, and, say, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Whenever I was a kid, uh, I think we were, I was probably eighth grade, we are sitting at home one summer, and uh, I was responsible for babysitting my brother. Uh, and we had to do chores and stuff, and uh, my mom worked, and so... Uh, I guess one day we just started really driving her crazy. I guess I was calling Tattling because he wouldn't ever do the chores, and he was calling Tattling because I'd beat him up because he wouldn't do the chores. Um, and so one day, I guess she got tired of it and decided to mess with us a little bit. And uh, we get this phone call, and it's someone with a different voice, and they begin to tell us that we have won the lottery. Man, I bought into that lie. I thought, man, I started thinking about all the things we were going to get. Like, we're going to buy a new house. We're going to get, a, you know, all these things, a new vehicle. I just, all these things are coming to my mind. And I'm going to get the newest game system. We're going to be rich, millions of dollars. I'm just thinking of all the things that we're going to get. And I bought into it. Me and my, Stephen, we're no longer fighting. We're best friends now. We're like hugging and jumping up and down. We're like, we're rich. We're like freaking out. And uh, we even called my grandma and we're like, hey, we've won the lottery. I don't know if you talked to mom yet, but mom, uh, we, we, just, we just got a phone call from some random lady from the Texas lottery thing. She says that we have won a, like millions of dollars. And my grandma's like, okay, like <laughs> not buying into it. And uh, my mom comes home and then reveals the truth that she had lied to us in hopes that uh, we would stop fighting. It totally worked. Parenting, like that's, that is, uh, that's totally a win. It's like she leveled up, right? Um, the sad part of this text is that some people have bought into the lie that you, can't, that you can have both. Right? You look at that. He says, well, I've often told you, and I'm going to say it again. Look, he says, with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You're not going to hear a lot of people preach that. Right? Paul says a lot of people are going to live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And what's their end? It's destruction. Their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and they're focused on earthly things. Satan wants to convince you that you can have it all. You can follow after Jesus and still satisfy 
your fleshly desires. He wants to convince you you have both. But we know in Scripture that's just not true. Look how he tempted Jesus, Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you fall down and worship me. He even tried to convince Jesus that he could have all the things his heart could desire and not face any kind of consequence. You can't have both. You can't have both. If out of two weeks of listening to me preach, if you don't get anything else, listen to me on this. You can't have both. You can't have the things of this world. You can't pursue the things of this world. You can't long for the things of this world and still follow Jesus. Those two things are antithetical towards one another. Do you get that this morning? Do you hear me this morning? You can't have both. It can't happen. And even though that truth is written on their hearts, some people are still going to choose their desires. Paul mourns this. He mourns this. He says that he has tears as he writes. We mourn the fact that people will choose to remain in their sin. We mourn. We pray that God would open their eyes to truth. But Paul doesn't hold back his words. Even though he mourns it, he doesn't hold back his words. Because truth is important. He says they'll remain as enemies, choosing to follow their hearts over surrendering to Jesus. He says their God is their stomach, which is their desires. They follow after their desires. Whatever their desire is, they pursue it. And destruction awaits. Let me say this morning, this is, this is on the heart of every preacher when they get up and stand before people and preach the word of God. We implore, we emphatically plead, we wish, man... If I could just flip a switch in your head, I would do it. If it meant I had to punch you in the face and go to jail for it, I'd do it. Because that's, that's what we're here for. That's what we've given our lives to. It's for people to see this reality, this truth, that you can't have both. You have to make a decision. And we mourn the fact, we mourn the fact that there are people that choose their own desires over the life that Christ offers. You've got to make a choice. What's more valuable to you? Do you value your sin more than you value knowing Christ? Because you can't hold on to both. They are the antithesis of one another, mutually exclusive. Because real faith produces real change. You really believe this stuff? Jesus even said, you're going you're to obey him. If you love him, you're going to obey him. Paul goes on. In the end, he finishes up with the Christian promise. Look at verse 20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. That's an encouraging part of the passage right there. We, we went from a little bit of a downer, now we're going to a little bit of an upper, all right? This is, the, this is an exciting part of this text. In contrast to those who choose their own desires over knowing Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven, and we fix our gaze on that reality. We eagerly await the arrival of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the exciting part. If you're a believer this morning, that should get you excited. Some of you don't look very excited. But you should be very excited about that. 
We talk about being saved in Christian circles, right? Man, I was saved when I was this age, or when did you get saved? We're saved, saved, saved. It's all this past tense saved word, right? But Paul says the complete fruition of our salvation is a future tense event. That we are being saved. And that the past tense is a future event. Yes, it started when you professed Jesus and now his spirit is sanctifying you from glory to glory. But one day you will be glorified when he transforms your body into the likeness of his glorious body. That's what we're living for. That's what we're reaching for. That's what Paul says. Like, you don't have to worry about all that old stuff anymore, all the stuff you gave up, because this is what we're reaching for. Freedom, ultimate freedom. That's why Paul says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's why his perspective is the way that it is, because death to him is not something to be feared. It's something to be looking forward to. It's not that we just give up and and end it all right now, but we live for Christ while we're here, but death is not something to be feared. It's, It's a gain. Death means the completion of our salvation. It means no more pain. It means no more sin. It means no more doing the things that we know we shouldn't do and not doing the things that we know we should do. It means the spiritual battle is won and we live eternally at peace with the Father. That's what all of this means. What a glorious day that will be. This is why the sinful life we walk away from pales in comparison to knowing Christ. Because one day all the sin and destruction that we have on this earth will be gone. And we as people who put our faith and hope in Christ will stand with him in eternity and get to be in his presence, which is ultimately what we were created for. Happiness can't compete with this. Following your heart can't compete with this. Filling your belly can't compete with this because nothing is greater. Nothing is greater. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among you the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which, what mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The promise of knowing this mystery, that Christ can dwell in you and give you the hope of future glory is greater than anything else this world could ever possibly offer you. Look at Revelation 5 verse 8. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God that they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth, under earth and of the sea and every, everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped this Listen to me this morning, church. This is more valuable than anything that you could ever give up. 
to be able to stand in that room and be able to see the magnificent beauty of God sitting on his throne, Jesus Christ reigning for eternity. You get to be a part of that as a believer, and there's nothing this, this world can offer you that is worth more than that. Nothing. This promise is infinitely more valuable. And so the question this morning is, what are we reaching for? What are you reaching for? Are you reaching for this? Or are you reaching for the junk that this world has to offer you? It's a lifelong pursuit, but it is a worthy pursuit. Don't focus on what you're giving up. Focus on the promise of what's to come. So what's the challenge this morning? As we wrap this thing up, what's the challenge this morning? If you don't know Jesus, if you've never surrendered to him in faith, my prayer is that the spirit of the living God is speaking to your heart right now and making you aware of your sin and its devastating effects. My prayer is that you will repent and give your life to Jesus because he is worthy. In a moment, the band's going to sing. As they sing, if that's you, if you've never given your life to Christ, you don't know him, you don't have a relationship with him, then my prayer is that you would come down. There are going to be a couple of people that are going to be standing right here in the front as the band sings later, that you would come down, grab them by the hand, and say, I want to know what it means to know Christ. Amen. I want to know what it means to have a relationship with him. If you're a believer this morning, the challenge is this, grow in maturity. Grow in maturity. Choose to live in the spirit and reach for knowing Jesus and his power and crucify your desires. Don't get enticed by the things of this world. And it seems like people are more and more obsessed with the sins of the culture. Church people, not just worldly people, we're talking about church people, people that come to church every Sunday are enticed by the things of this world. They look at the life, they see others living, and the truth be told, in their heart of hearts, they want it. They want the stuff. They want the party. They want the social acceptance. But listen to me this morning, believer. It's a lie. It's a lie. Don't buy into it. There's nothing this world can offer you. You're strangers and exiles. This is not your home. You're not of this world. Don't fixate on the old life. Fix your gaze on the future hope of glory and live for the glory of God. We need men on Father's Day to choose to live this. Men on Father's Day in this church need to get this reality and start living it out for your family. So maybe you need some time to repent of some idolatry in your life. Maybe you're a believer, but you need to repent of fixating on the culture and the things that are behind you. So in a moment when the band sings, these altars are going to be for you. There's altars down here for you to come and pray and repent. So my challenge to you would be that. So if you never given your life to Christ, as the music plays here in a moment, I'm going to pray. They're going to start singing. There'll be people standing in front. Come down, grab them by the hand, talk to them about what it means to to give your life to Christ. If that's not your thing, if you're like, hey, I'm not walking down there, that's not happening. And shoot us an email, there's a card in front of you, fill out the card and say that you'd like to talk to a pastor, something, some way get in touch with us so we can have that conversation. There's no conversation that's more important than that. If you're a believer this morning, 
My prayer is that you are bold enough to walk down here and kneel before God and pray and ask him to change your heart. But if that's not true, then right where you're at, ask him to change your heart. You can pray to God anywhere you're at. Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? Father God, we, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for the grace and mercy that's been given to us. God, we, we know and we understand that we are a wretched people. It's not that we're sinners because we make bad choices sometimes, but that we're sinners because our heart is wretched and sinful and deceitful. So God, I pray that we would recognize that this morning. I pray, God, that we would mourn that this morning. God, I pray that if anyone in the room doesn't know you, if they don't have a relationship with you, God, that in this moment, your spirit is moving and convicting them of the sin in their life. That your spirit's moving and convicting them of the, of the sinful heart that they have. God, I pray that in this moment they would repent of that, that they would mourn it, and God, that they would surrender their life to you as Lord and make you the king of their hearts. God, we pray that you would move during this time in in, in hearts. We pray, God, for those in this room this morning that do know you, they have a relationship with, with you, God. There's so many lies in this world that that everything seems enticing. God, I pray that we as believers would recognize that this is not our home and there's nothing here that is worthy of our adoration. There's nothing here that is worthy of our devotion because we are citizens in heaven with you. And God, our hope, our our focus, what we're reaching for in this life, God, I pray that we'd be reaching for, for living this life for your glory. God, I pray for fathers in this room. It's a, it's a hard time to live as a man because there's so many things that draw us away from, from you. But God, I pray that in this room that, that the men here would choose to stand for what they believe in they would live for your glory and model that for their spouses, that they would model that for their children. God, that we as a people would be reaching for knowing you in your power. And that we would be reaching for crucifying the desires of our flesh. God, I pray that you would rise up some mature men, some mature women in this church so that young believers can see what this is modeled. God, I pray that we wouldn't make excuses this morning, that we would recognize the, the current situation in our heart and that we would repent of it and that you would bring revival in us. God, we pray that we move during this time and that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.